we look at the suffering that's caused by craving, the compulsions, the the underlying kind of thought patterns of, you know, something is just not okay about my life experience and I need to escape. And what that craving to get away from what my current experience is, what, what that's like, where that suffering is. Welcome to episode 323 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Laura, Robin, Amanda, and Penelope. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Laura, Robin, Amanda, and Penelope for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today, and joining me today is Josh. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Spencer. You are here to talk to us about an interesting, different approach to recovery. You have a reading that we're going to start with? Yes. This is a section from the 12 Steps and 12 Tradition textbook. It relates to meditation, and it's on page 98 of the 12 and 12. It reads like this. We will want the good that is in all of us, even in the worst of us, to flower and to grow. Most certainly, we shall need bracing air and an abundance of food. But first of all, we shall want sunlight. Nothing much can grow in the dark. Meditation is our first step out into the sun. How then shall we meditate? The actual experience of meditation and prayer across the centuries is, of course, immense. The world's libraries and places of worship are a treasure trove for all seekers. It is to be hoped that every AA who has a religious connection which emphasizes meditation will return to the practice of that devotion as never before. But what about the rest of us who, less fortunate, don't even know how to begin? That is how to begin, you know. For me, that passage kind of serves as an entry point into what I wanted to talk about that was uh, Recovery Dharma, which is a peer support group addiction recovery program that uses meditation, Buddhist principles, meetings for the purpose of recovering from a variety, all varieties of addiction. The 11th step in the 12 steps, it talks about prayer and meditation. And meditation is really one of the foundations of the recovery process for people that are practicing in the recovery dharma path. So that served kind of as the the entry point into, I think, one of the primary sort of overlaps or complementary parts of the 12 steps and recovery dharma. You called a month or so ago and left me a message saying that you'd been participating in a couple of different groups, both of which, I guess, focus on meditation in recovery and wanted to see if I might be interested in talking to you about that. And I and I thought, yeah, that sounds like an interesting dive into some other support for, for recovery. And I don't think, I think, you know, as you said, it's not exclusive or in conflict with 
12-step recovery if people want to practice both, I guess. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could back up a little bit and just get a little bit of your story, how you came to recovery, and maybe how you found Recovery Dharma. For me, it it began back in uh, when I was about 19 or 20 years old is when I first began my recovery journey in the 12 Steps. I was young, you know, I'm 46 now. This was back in the late 90s. I was very depressed. I was early in maybe what you would call my drinking career or addiction. And the depression, I ended up having a, a suicide attempt that was really my, my wake-up call that mm-hmm. something was going on. It was, you know, a sufficiently serious attempt that I after talking to mental health professionals and my family and just taking stock of my life situation, I ended up going to a, an outpatient treatment program and quickly realized that I was very fortunate in some ways to have had this very intense depression that brought to light my, my early drinking troubles. That was the, the entry point for me. And right from the start, you know, I was able to become involved in the 12 steps, found some great meetings in Boise, Idaho, where I live. And it it helped the structure, the steps, you know, the the main challenge for me was I'm an individual that doesn't come from any kind of religious background. So Mm -hmm. like a lot of people, I kind of had a hard time with the, the higher power components of things. I was able to work with it okay, just because it was it was more the structure and the group support that I relied upon. Yeah. And then, you know, over time, as I saw, you know, other people in the 12 step program really talking about how the, the spiritual aspects of the program were just integral to the stability of their recovery. And that, that stability for me, that was that piece of it, it never congealed. Mm. So I always had this, part of me that was sort of surrounding the spiritual part that seemed like it just wasn't progressing in my recovery. Meanwhile, I did make some really good friendships and some nice connections with sponsors. There there was that piece that was never quite right. But, you know, I stuck with it just because it was valuable and it contributed to continuous recovery for me. And also, I learned a lot about how bad it could have gotten for me. I was young, and yet I heard so many stories about people who started out just the way I was starting out, and they got so much worse. And so it served as such a persistent reminder to me of how critical it was for me to commit to a recovery process. Got it. That That's my, my early story. I You know, I, I don't have one of those very inspirational dark tales of someone who went you know, for a long time, really far down and then came back. It's one of my challenges in recovery is, for better or worse, not having uh, overcome a long history of troubles, um, which contributes to some denial, too. Mm. And I guess you wanted to kind of hear, too, about how the recovery dharma and the Buddhist things came into the picture. Right. So here you are. You're working working the program as much as you can. You have the structure, you have the community, it's keeping you sober, but you you don't feel like you can kind of be all in to the program. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what was it. I think that that feeling is what, as my life became more stable, as I uh, got married, moved away from Boise to New Orleans. Oh, that's different. <laughs> it's very different, yeah. And that was, you know, my, my wife's education took us there. Mm-hmm. 
I had kind of fallen away from the program and wasn't able to make connections with recovery. And so I just, you know, had a pretty decent life. But eventually things became stressful for me and I had I had a relapse in mm. New Orleans. It, it was very much like the stories I've heard of people who had quit drinking and then were sober a long time and they start up again. And it was as if their addiction had progressed in spite of having been sober. I had just the drinking pattern that I exhibited was so much more severe. And so, you know, I quickly remembered, you know, how much the 12 steps had benefited me and I jumped right back into it. That's that's really that's what had happened to me to get back to it. And I quickly re-encountered that, that feeling of the, that one missing piece of the spiritual side of things. I happened to get a sponsor in New Orleans who, who was uh, a practicing Buddhist as well as someone who was working the 12-step programs. And so I had this, this idea that, oh, here, here's like another spiritual approach that sort of overlaps a little bit. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't have a spiritual connection, even early in my recovery, I latched on to the meditation process. So I had a meditation practice all, all throughout here, but never thought to you know, explore Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So there I was in New Orleans, back into the 12-step process and stabilized once again. And then another move happened a few years later to Boston. Same kind of pattern where I moved away from the, the program and stress came up. I had cancer. I went through chemo, a lot of stress with the family and a relapse again. And at that point, I kind of knew that, you know, that the 12-step thing, I'm going to hit this wall again. And so I started looking at my depression and looking at my memories of what happened before and was drawn more towards Buddhism. And I found some meditation groups in Boston. There's a place called the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And I really found a good book that was called A Mindful Way Through Depression that brought to me this idea that oh, here's something that it can really help me from a spiritual side. And I didn't quite make the connection entirely to the addiction piece of it Mm -hmm. until I started to, I really had um, an eye-opening because once more the life kind of hit me hard and the marriage fell apart and I moved back to Boise. Mm -hmm. And um, again, so the pattern comes again, the stress of this, a relapse, and back to an outpatient treatment center after that relapse. And again, this Buddhism seed had been planted in me with meditation and the memories I found. I went back to the 12 steps. I had some good friends in Boise that were part of meetings and I reconnected with them. But the thing that really finally put me into the the Buddhist and meditation realm was my challenges with some some compulsive internet use and pornography addiction. I went into the 12-step approach to working with that kind of addiction and found that it really wasn't connecting the spiritual side for some reason or another. It really felt like, wow, there's a huge gap here. How, how do I work with this? And then I had become involved with local Buddhist groups in Boise, and I came across a guy who had started this thing called Refuge Recovery. There were already meetings kind of in other parts of the country. This was just a guy who in jail had become friends with a local Buddhist teacher in Boise. And subsequently, at the same time as that, he had come in contact with Noah Levine's writings. There was a group called the Dharma Punks. And they had the beginnings of like a recovery program that used Buddhism instead of the 12 Steps. And that's where things really kind of took off for me. And I thought, ah, 
I've got a path that works for me. Here's a fella that, you know, is in recovery. He has this connection with a Buddhist teacher. And that's where things really blossomed as far as me with my involvement with recovery dharma and refuge recovery as my recovery path. I did a little bit of internet research in preparation. So those are two, seems like very similar themed, but separate programs. They each have their own sets of meetings and their own literature. Correct. They're both based on recovery through Buddhist teachings. Is that a, a, a correct statement? Absolutely. That's correct. I will put a link to both websites. I will put a link to each website, I guess, to be precise, in the show notes here at therecovery.show slash 323. And I did, did a little more digging and found out that both of those programs have meetings in my area. Oh, great. If they both have meeting finders, I take from that that, that in fact, there probably are meetings in, in one or the other or both of these programs, probably in many different cities. With yes. two examples. Yes. Okay. Boise and yes. Ann Arbor. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I will <laughs> yeah. totally generalize from two examples to, to everywhere. <laughs> okay. And I think both of them also mentioned uh, online or phone meetings. Mm-hmm. I guess if somebody's listening and this really sounds intriguing to them, maybe they are struggling in the same way as you did with the, mm-hmm. the higher power concept in the 12 steps. We'll have that resource available for people to, to look at. Or if somebody just wants to, you know, augment their existing recovery program. I think that's also a resource that's available there. Mm-hmm. I noticed one of them, and I forget which one now that I looked up, there are meetings. There's a actually a Buddhist temple that's about two blocks from my house, and there's a couple of meetings there, which makes sense, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, right. Yes. Anyway, I like had all these questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what is what does it look like? One of them, I found a page, it's like, this is what a meeting is usually structured like, but why don't you tell us what, what your meetings look like, and we'll dig, we'll dig from there. The meeting structure, most meetings now, I think I can safely say this, will, will take place in some kind of meditation center, or maybe even a Buddhist temple, or in a treatment center. There's a few in treatment centers. Anyway, they, they start out, people will come into a room, There there might be like meditation cushions on the floor. People might sit on the floor and kind of have this Buddhist feel to it. And there might be chairs there arranged in a circle or, you know, in a grid, whatever. For those of us who are a little less flexible. (laughs) You got it. There's readings at the beginning, both with refuge recovery and recovery Dharma. There's a a set of a few pages that are handed out at the beginning of the meeting that volunteers read to describe, kind of just get a general sense about what the structure of the meeting is. You know, maybe analogous to the 12 steps and 12 traditions and the mm-hmm. preamble. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. And it's a peer-led. There, there's no particular, like, one person that's in charge of the meeting. They try to have a rotating leadership. There's a reading at the beginning, and then there is a period of, say, about, I think, on average, most meetings have about 20 minutes, and it'll be a guided meditation some groups will have a silent meditation. Okay, so guided meditation, sometimes silent meditation, sometimes maybe depending on the group. Yeah, some people might play a recorded meditation and some might, there's in both the Refuge Recovery book and the Recovery Dharma book, there's some scripts for meditation 
that people can use. So, you know, you don't have to be a Buddhist or a meditation teacher to, to lead these. And of course, the silent meditation, you just need a timer. <laughs> right. So, indeed. So, a period of meditation and then maybe a, a reading from some of the literature to serve as a starting point for a topic. Maybe uh, just open sharing where people just share in the same way that they might share in a 12 step meeting. And sometimes I think some meetings do have speakers to kind of get a little bit of a personal story. And there's also some groups where they do some writing. There, there are mm. things rather than inventories, like, you know, in the 12 step world, mm. they call them, they call it call inquiry is the term or in, inquiries. You know, you kind of mm -hmm. look inward and you, you write things down and you share that in places where you, you know, are in a place where you feel safe to talk about really private things. Yeah. Another thing that I wondered about was it just says recovery. It doesn't say from what. And I was like, well, you know, a lot of my listeners are here because they're in a relationship with somebody who's an addict. And we can argue about whether that relationship is itself an addiction. And and I believe for me that it that definitely has aspects of that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what about like if I'm just codependent i don't have a substance or a process addiction just a codependent whatever that means and so i went to the websites and they both have frequently asked questions and one of those questions does refuge recovery offer recovery from addictions other than drugs and alcohol and it says we satisfy cravings in many ways in refuge recovery groups we offer recovery from all forms of addiction including food sex technology gambling relationships spending codependency and more all are welcome to find recovery and a community mm -hmm. recovery dharma has a very similar statement we have found that the buddhist wisdom and practices that make up recovery dharma can help us understand and overcome the suffering caused by any type of addiction whether it's a dependency to drugs or alcohol or behavior-based addictions like sex, relationships, food, gambling, self-harm, codependency, etc. All those who seek recovery are welcome at meetings regardless of the substance or behavior that brings them to us. So that's very inclusive. I mean, that's good because mm -hmm. <laughs> otherwise you, yes. you splinter, you get your, your yeah. you know, recovery dharma alcoholism and your recovery dharma yes. cocaine or whatever. Right, right. Can you... Just share a little bit of your experience around, you know, how that feels in a meeting when maybe people are talking. I don't know. I mean, do you talk about your addiction mm -hmm. and, and people are talking about all kinds of different things? Yeah. So the majority of people do come in with a substance or, mm -hmm. yeah, a substance. You know, it's troubles with alcohol or narcotics or yeah, most it's drugs and alcohol, but there is discussion. I, I'll talk about my issues with compulsive pornography use. Some people will talk about eating disorders. We've had people with codependency issues that come in. It's certainly not the majority of people, mm -hmm. but the the way that it's approached to have it be all encompassing, and this is where the the Buddhist approach comes in very in a very helpful ways. We look at the suffering that's caused by craving, the compulsions, the the underlying kind of thought patterns of, you know, something is just not okay about my life experience and I need to escape. And what that craving to get away from what my current experience is, what, what that's like, where that suffering is. So that's the kind of discussion that the meetings mm -hmm. you know, work toward facilitating. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how it would be all-encompassing. 
but that, it is a challenge because the majority of people that, that come in do have the the substance uh, abuse issues yeah so yes yeah i do know that in conversations that i've had with members of aa or, or other groups that in the 12 steps only the first step mentions the particular addiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and everything after that is about as you say in in working to relieve the suffering yeah both um, from the past and what's still going on because of the past mhm and and new things that come up within recovery with with the past moving further and further back that's one of the things that's great about recovery dharma and refuge recovery is that not just that it's inclusive and addresses the beginnings and continuous recovery, but it kind of helps too with the avoiding the development of some cross addictions where people might stop their drinking or drug use and become obsessed, say with maybe pornography or gambling or some of these other things that, you know, might take them a little while to break through the denial of, uh Oh, here's something else in my life. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most destructive pieces maybe kind of handled, quote-unquote, but nonetheless, there's these other pieces of craving that have come up. So, you know, in theory, the development of cross-addictions is somewhat discouraged by engaging in the Buddhist practice where the craving and the compulsion and, you know, the inability to be present with life is addressed more directly than the the story of the initial substance or behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Do you see similarities i mean you've talked a little bit about maybe some similarities between the the recovery dharma and the refuge recovery programs and 12 step programs i mean there's clear differences yeah the, you know i wrote down i was thinking about the podcast and i wrote down like a like a on a piece of paper like a two column list okay. of like similarities you know and they're both you know, primarily you have you have meetings. I mean, sure, there's literature and practice on your own, but there is this group setting where people share their life experience and their stories, and they get together on a regular basis and have scheduled meetings. That's that's right there, and they both have a spiritual kind of practice underlying them. I mean, AA's done a really good job of having a higher power being something people determine on their own. But there is the like the, the God language, the Christian formation, the mm-hmm. background foundation there. Yes. And the recovery dharma has its, you know, openly stated association with a spiritual lineage being Buddhism. In recovery dharma and refuge recovery, there's these inquiries. There's there's a set of questions that are kind of like inventories that people go through to really understand their addiction. And it's written down kind of just like an inventory would be. Instead of a uh, sponsor in Recovery Dharma, we call them mentors. You have someone who you consult with kind of on a, on a one-to-one basis outside of the meetings. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that relationship that's encouraged. And there's literature, too. Both of them have kind of mm-hmm. some literature that's written down where you have a structure to go to, to read on your own. And there's also speakers in one way or another. Many people do rely on specific speakers or individuals in the 12 steps that have served as their stories or their approach is good. And in recovery dharma, you, you do a lot of people rely on, on Buddhist teachers 
you know, there's people like Jack Cornfield or Thich Nhat Hanh or Noah Levine, Tara Brock. I mean, there's a whole bunch of folks that are recognized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that component too, where you have people that are experts in that field that folks go to. And the other thing too, is there, there is some endorsement among the treatment recovery community to you know, treatment centers to encourage involvement in either of these branches. In, in Boise, there, there's a few people that have their, they call them green cards in Boise, which is like if they're court ordered to a meeting, we can sign these cards at recovery Dharma meetings and they're, you know, the court, their parole officers, they're okay with it, but it, they do kind of have to talk and check in. So both of them satisfy that, that legal requirement, although that might ver- vary from state to state. It's, but there's that too, that piece is there. Um, so those are kind of the things when I was writing down my little list that really jump out about their similarities. And big difference is in the the spiritual underpinning is different, right? Yeah, that's one of the big differences, along with just recovery dharma, even though it has an ancient spiritual tradition, it does incorporate some more modern approaches, both to addressing trauma and issues with attachment disorders, some just some things that are sort of related to modern psychology that, you know, the 12 steps, because it has an older foundation, hasn't quite been able to integrate. So, you know, there's a little more modern addiction recovery theory that's blended into recovery dharma too, especially addressing the issues with trauma, which has been pretty well recognized as having some of the, the roots of addiction being involved with early life traumas. And I think you've pretty well answered this question I had, and I was pretty sure the answer, you don't have to be practicing Buddhist to participate in these programs. No, the, the closest thing to maybe struggling with not being a practicing Buddhist would be, most places don't have a recovery dharma or a refuge recovery meeting every day. Right. And so for that kind of more everyday experience of recovery, it, it's recommended to try to find a local Buddhist group where people get together and meditate, maybe you listen to a Buddhist teacher talk about some encouraging sort of healthy approaches to life. So there might be some Buddhist experience that a person would engage in that is more more of like being a Buddhist just for the sake of having a regular meeting at a regular time around people that are engaging in some healthy life practices and learning how to meditate too, just that too. Right. Yeah, that 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 whole sit and still thing, that's kind of tough for some of us. Yeah. Yes, it is. I work at a, a local psychiatric hospital in Boise, and I, I teach a little meditation group to to patients. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I regularly experience the the feedback from people in in the recovery meetings, but as well as at the hospital with the challenges of just meditating. Period. When yeah. life's challenges are so intense. Yeah, I'm sure. Anything else that you wanted to share about how? your involvement in these programs has really helped your recovery personally? For me personally, I have really had to commit more intensely to staying involved with this program than ever with the 12 steps because it's it's a new process. And in order, I mean, it's a, a new group. It's a new recovery path. And so for it to be supported requires really intense dedication from individuals for me, it's been just really just showing up, you know, on a regular basis, always showing up and having to because sometimes there haven't been other people that will do it. So 
my level of commitment to serving as a representative in Boise has really intensified more so. But one of the challenges being, too, is that sometimes feeling like it's it's a little too much for me or, mm-hmm. or having a, a hard time getting support for it. So for me, that level of commitment has really increased, of being of service, much more so than in recovery, than in my 12-step uh, involvement. So that's been one of the biggest benefits for me. And as well, really focusing on my recovery being related to what's going on in my life right now, too. Mm-hmm. Another challenge is, you know, a lot of the group solidarity in 12 Steps is really based around sharing that common story of the suffering that goes with being in the addiction. And in recovery dharma, there isn't quite as much, and this may be different in other groups, where there's a feeling of solidarity that's created out of really sharing the, the dark depths, you know. And in the absence of that kind of solidarity, sometimes it's tougher for a group to feel cohesive, you know, asking mm-hmm. people to go below the surface early on in their recovery to like the cravings and the need to really make some fundamental life changes. That that can be hard. And for me, that's been beneficial. But I, I did have a lot of years in the 12-step programs that kind of prepared me to approach it at that level. Yeah, I guess that gets back to my my question or my thoughts about having people with many different sorts of addictions or co-addictions mm-hmm. that it yeah. it perhaps is it is more difficult to to form a bond around the addiction or the mm-hmm. the the process or the co-addiction yeah. than than it would be in AA or Al-Anon. Yeah, it is. That's that's been my experience in in Boise. Now I'm guessing that if you were to have a, a larger cross section of folks in maybe other cities and other groups where there was a a larger core group supporting the meetings, that this the story of group solidarity might be a little different. There may be more of that that feeling of the common stories being told. There's kind of a, a critical mass, I think, that's important mm-hmm. for meetings to to really take root. That's really something where my experience might be might be different from other cities. Do you also continue to participate in twelve step meetings, or has this become your your primary recovery? This has become my my primary recovery. You know, it's for about four years now. I this has been my go to recovery process. Yeah, yeah. And and you feel like you're much more able to be. As I said earlier, all in. Yeah, I, I I really do. Yeah, and I think that's what's important when we're looking for recovery, right? Is to find mm-hmm. to find what works for us. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons. I mean, I started this podcast as, gee, there's some AA podcasts out there. We need an Al-Anon podcast, and mm-hmm. I was encouraged in this by a friend of mine who. Uh, has an AA podcast that's still going. He's over a thousand episodes now, which just blows me away. Mm-hmm. And I started bringing some Al-Anon issues. He invited me to participate in his podcast at, at at the time. He was sort of growing it from being pretty much solo to having guests. And we would get some questions from listeners like, I don't get this Al-Anon stuff. And I said to him, well, maybe, you know, we could do an episode about Al-Anon. And he said, maybe you could do a whole podcast about Al-Anon. Like, oh, boy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but what I hear from people is 
that for some number of my listeners, enough that I hear from them, you know, the straight Al-Anon program is not enough for them or not sufficient or, or not really meeting. And so I've had people on who are in the Adult Children of Alcoholics program, which granted is a, a spinoff from Al-Anon, you know, people talking about the Melody Beattie codependency books and that sort of thing. And, and it's like, I, mm-hmm. I can't talk about other recovery programs because I'm not in them, but you know, if I can, if, if, if I can get people like you to come talk about, you know, what's working for you in, in some uh-huh. other form of recovery, I feel like it just, it broadens the message. It broadens the people that I can, we can carry some recovery to, right? That's right. So if somebody, I don't know, you meet somebody at a gathering maybe, and they're like in recovery, but not feeling it, or maybe they're not in recovery yet. What might you say to somebody who's considering one of these programs, like to uh, maybe encourage them to try it, to help them figure out if this is something that might work for them or whatever? Wide open question. Yeah. Wide open question. You know, words of encouragement and I've had this kind of conversation with, with people at the, the hospital where I work and, and at meetings too, where I, I point out to them this meditation, sometimes mindfulness and meditation is used to help people with addiction recovery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll, I'll point people to just the plain old research maybe on meditation and mindfulness and how it can help with cravings and addiction. So I will say that as one way if I just don't get the feel that they talk about some of their spiritual conflicts with recovery. So just just to recommend meditation is one approach that I've taken. And then as, as soon as I hear someone say that they've tried the 12 steps and they have an immediate barrier with the religious, that's where I say, you know, maybe this, this Buddhist thing might work for you. And with the, a lot of people practicing yoga becoming more common as a wellness thing, mm-hmm. sometimes I can when I mention recovery dharma in the context of this, there's a local Buddhist teacher here, for example, who has a group of people he teaches and his wife's a yoga teacher. So there, there's this kind of overlap to the sort of in the wellness area. So that's one approach to it mm-hmm. that allows people to see outside of the spiritual realm. And then there's the people who like right from the get go say that they're in recovery and meditation helps. And they just haven't heard of recovery dharma. Yeah. Well, I hadn't. Yeah, right. And it's growing. Obviously, there's meetings in a lot of cities, so I just I just tell them about it. That's one of the ways I'll bring it up. And then people that come to the meetings, you know, a lot of folks will show up and they'll never show up again. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of times it's just planting seeds. And so I just say, hey, you just give it a try. See what it's like for you. Yeah. You know, not even go into details about it. And so you know, treatment centers, they, they don't refer people to a lot of alternatives just because there aren't, you know, so, yeah. and the idea. Yeah. I mean, I know there are other recovery programs out there. I yeah. have a little bit of familiarity just from reading with like uh-huh. smart recovery. I had a friend who was involved with that and, and gave me some literature, but you're right. I mean, the, yeah. a large, a large emphasis is on, on the 12 step. Yeah program partly because it has been so successful uh-huh. but it, it doesn't mean that other other approaches don't work and that other approaches might not be better for any particular person yeah 
And the other thing I do too, if I ever come across someone who I know has like addictions or compulsions and not even in the recovery world is just remembering to, to try to be kind and recognize just how hard it is. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, just that, just sort of some decency and some compassion towards people. You know, a lot of times folks that are, have addictions, people just throw a solution right at them, like go to meetings, come on. And so sometimes I just, just try to be, just sympathize and recognize that it's tough and hopefully approach it from that side. And that opens up some willingness and acceptance, you know. Indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh, digging in a little bit. It sounds like an approach that obviously works for you and a lot of other people and and uh, might work better for some of my listeners than than the traditional 12-step approach or might complement it. Mm-hmm. I particularly liked your connecting it with overall wellness mm-hmm. because even without the recovery component, you know, as you said, there is so much uh, research that, that mindfulness and meditation can help just help with wellness yeah. in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. All right. You picked some songs for us. Uh, tell us about the first one you picked. The first song that I picked, it's a, there's a group, Oh Wonder, and they have a song called Landslide. And I think maybe the song sounds a little bit like just being overwhelmed, maybe from a relationship breakup or something. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, to me, it speaks with when you're overwhelmed with something that it does pass, that emotional like intensity passes. You know, things you people do get over it. And also there's some language in the lyrics that talks about just being there for you. And so it's this connection that, you know, the difficult times do pass and that there there is support available. In, in Buddhism, one of the main principles is impermanence, mm-hmm. that things are always changing. And so that's why I chose this song, Landslide by Oh Wonder. Just a short note before we move into the next segment of the show. This show was recorded about a week ago before life became crazier. So when we talk about meetings, those are meetings before the COVID-19 reaction shut down most of our meetings. That's all. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery in the past week or so? And since you've been talking a lot, I'll go ahead. Last weekend, I was recording a podcast episode with Deborah, and my phone rang. It was my brother calling. I was pretty sure that he wasn't calling me in the middle of a Sunday afternoon just to say hi, because he doesn't do that. But I, I was in the middle of recording, so I just sent him a quick text like, I can't talk right now. And later I talked to him and it turned out that our father, who is 90, had gone into the hospital with what they hoped was a a UTI, urinary tract infection. The symptom was that his left leg wasn't working. He had tried to get up in the middle of the night and had fallen because his leg wouldn't support him. Luckily, he didn't break anything. So I was a little concerned. They live 
almost 500 miles away. So I couldn't just like, you know, zoom over there and, and see what's up. And so I, I was using my, you know, my Al-Anon skills here of do what I can do, find out what there is to find out, and then let go of waiting for or wishing for a particular outcome. Although I certainly wishing that it was a urinary tract infection and not a stroke, which was the other major possibility. And sure enough, a couple days later, he was out. Friday, my phone rings again. It's my brother. And my father's back in the hospital with a different problem. And again, I said, okay, you know, what happened? What's up? Well, they want to keep him over the weekend because they're concerned, but they're not concerned enough to bring the doctors in on the weekend to do tests. So Monday, they're going to do some some procedures to see if they can figure out what's up. I'm like, <laughs> you know, he's bad enough. He needs to stay in the hospital, but not bad enough to bring the doctors in on the weekend, right? Okay, a little bit of resentment there, maybe. But again, understanding I can't control this situation. I can't really do anything about this situation from a distance. And being able to go on with my life, which is, there's this expression that, you know, pain happens, but we don't have to suffer for it. The idea that the suffering that I could make for myself by just continuing to worry doesn't help anything. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help my father. It doesn't help my brother, who's the primary caregiver. And so being able to do what I can, which I I said, do you want, you know, do you want me to come and be support? And he said, well, I don't think we need to do that at this point. It's like, okay, this is what I can do. So that's been, (laughs) that's been my, uh, recovery. And it's funny though, yesterday morning I was at a meeting and our topic was control. How do we like to control? How do we try to control? How have we let go of trying to control as we've been working recovery? I spoke about what I had found in my inventory last time I did it and and how it might be different now. And then later I realized I hadn't even thought about this like big situation where I'm not exerting control. Like, okay, I actually have been successful in reducing my desire to control things that are actually outside of my ability to control. That felt good. Like, hey, this recovery stuff, like, you know, I'm what, 18 years in almost, kind of (laughs) works. Oh, anyway, you know, how do you use recovery outside of your meetings? How's it been working for you recently? In Buddhism, there's there's this idea of you you have a practice, and in the story that that you talked about, there was like a life situation, and one of my practices, I, I can't think of a life situation, but one of my practices outside of meditation that does relate to what I can control and not control, and also how to be present with the world just as it is and what's happening. Yeah. And I know this is a bit of a digression from the world of recovery, but one of the things that I have found to be very beneficial is social dance practice, and in mm. particular, the the Argentine tango. Whoa! <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> I know, I know. You, you you see it on Dancing with the Stars, and it looks yeah. all fancy and stuff. But when people practice it socially, they get together. It it's a very structured kind of caring, uh, intimate process. 
And there's this way of practicing, like, I am not in control of the person I'm dancing with. Mm-hmm. We, we are sharing like a moment where it, we're expressing something. We both have our own movements. I have to be aware of how the person responds to when I move. And I have to be willing to be close to my immediate experience, maybe even be uncomfortable and be very aware of where my body is in space. So this, this is a practice for me of being present, you know, with another person for having a moment of joy, but in a disciplined way. And at the same time, being kind of uncomfortable, you know, because I'm, I'm in a place where I'm trying to say, guide the person I'm dancing with. Mm-hmm. But they're the, they're the one that moves themselves always. Maybe I move my body, but I'm not shoving them around. That's not a pleasant dance. You see where this, the metaphor goes when you, when you try to shove the world around. Yeah. It's not an enjoy, not an enjoyable process. So for me, a, a branch of my meditation practice is this social dance practice. You know, it's a way of interacting with people in a very close kind of thing where you're both letting go and embracing (laughs) it's beautiful (laughs) yeah no i like that and and it is it's a perfect metaphor as well as an actual practice Mm -hmm. you also said that it is a meditative practice i guess is is that a a fair paraphrase of what you said for me very much so this gets back to this well i try to meditate but i can't sit still thing that i hear from so many people i'm like I can find the sort of meditative experience sitting still or Mm -hmm. doing some activity, walking, Mm -hmm. dancing. I hadn't thought of that. But when I think of meditation as a way of opening myself up and being present, Quieting my mind is one way of doing that. Yes. Letting what's happening around me come into me and through me. Mm-hmm. Noticing it, but not holding on to it. Mm-hmm. This is the the sort of the mindfulness practice as I understand it. Y- yes, you understand it well, yes. <laughs> the way you talked about dancing, about being fully present in the moment about being fully present with your dance partner mm-hmm. feels to me very much like, and this is what you said, it's another exercise of that same set of principles, but it's a, a, an exercise that involves your whole body. Yes. As well. Yes. That is cool. It, it's very cool. I just, I, one of the other songs <laughs> that I've suggested here was a, uh, a tango song that I, you're not asking for music yet, but for me, that's, that's a big part of, of my recovery is because I don't always like sitting still, you know, many people have found yoga to be a meditative outlet. And right. Some people running, running even is very much, they'll consider a form of meditation, but I, I wanted something that was movement, but was interactive with people. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned that from recovery, from showing up at the meetings, and hearing and witnessing people, that's so powerful. And so I wanted something outside of that that was still mindful, but I'm there with with people in a social yeah. place where where closeness is safe and encouraged. And it's not necessarily recovery based, but it but it is for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sure. And I think that's, that's a big part of this process of living in recovery is discovering the things that give us joy, the things that give us value that when, when I was engaged in my co-addiction with, with my partner, that was consuming such a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. And now I have time. I have energy to explore other things that I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have. And so right. uh, it's a wonderful example. I love it. Yeah. This is interesting because looking forward, what's coming up on the podcast or what might be coming up on the podcast, I had a suggestion a few weeks ago from somebody who's like, so, you know, those of us who are like atheist, agnostic, or not Christian, not any, what you might call mainstream spiritual practice, like, how do we engage with the 12 steps? So I'm reaching out to gather experiences of of people who you know, consider themselves to fall into one of those categories where, as you said, you know, you had a lot of difficulty with the God language in the, in the 12 steps and in the literature. And so it's, it's kind of like, here we are. This is sort of one example of, of that. And I had been looking for, you know, people to send in a five or five minutes or something share. We got a whole episode. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So that's coming up and I'm 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 looking for shares from listeners who uh you know find yourself maybe struggling with the the higher power language the god the god language or just the concept as as a whole to uh to share your your struggles to share what you have come to as an understanding that has given you a place a support to to work through the the steps or not Love to hear from you. Uh, you can leave a voicemail, send an email, and and Josh, how do, how can people do that? Well, you can call and, and leave us a voicemail at seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. You can call right now to seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. Or if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of recovery, dharma, and refuge recovery, or any of our upcoming topics. And if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website, which is therecovery.show, does have all the information about the show. We have notes for each episode. So this one is at therecovery.show slash 323. We will include in there definitely links to both the Recovery Dharma and Refuge Recovery websites and a link to the 12 and 12 as well that you read from at the beginning of the uh, of the episode, along with YouTube videos, hopefully, where you can listen to the music that... Uh, Josh has picked for the episode. And speaking of that, what's the next one? So this is a song titled Bloom by a group called the Paper Kites. The the reading that I chose, it it talked a little bit about, you know, flowering and and sunlight and using some language related to meditation. And the the song Bloom, it's 
it's a little bit about the the stories that kind of bloom in in our minds. It's a ro- kind of a romantic song. I'm a romantic person, you know. I talked about the tango. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the idea is that life can be kind of sweet when we stay close to our stories. You know, not necessarily get wrapped up in them, but remember that they're they're you know they're part of our lives, and that we have these stories and that they need to be told. That we need to share them because that's kind of how we can help each other in recovery. Thank you. some email and voicemail this week. Natalie wrote with a topic request. She says, Hi, Spencer. I had an idea for a topic or series of topics. It may not be the most popular idea, but I've noticed that you've not done any episodes on the 12 concepts of service, and I thought it might be interesting to hear about it from a variety of different viewpoints. Thanks for the suggestion, Natalie. And you know what? We did record a series of Episodes on the Al-Anon Concepts of Service in 2015, I did that with Akila, but I didn't title them concepts because I know whenever I'm in a meeting and somebody says, well, hey, even let's talk about the traditions, everybody's like, oh, boring, and the concepts are even more so. But they're not. They're actually like great guides to to working in a group, living with other people. And so I didn't title them like, Concepts. I titled them things like responsibility and authority and right of decision, participation, harmony, and being heard, and so on. So there were six episodes that we did. Most of them covered a couple of concepts. I will put links in the show notes to those episodes so that if you want to go back and listen to them, you can. Also, Eric and I have Definitely talked about a couple of the concepts in some of our episodes that we've done together. Again, I'm not sure they're uh, properly labeled as, or they're not labeled as such, um, but there's there's a couple that I know we have touched on recently, at least as part of a topic discussion. Lisa called and left a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. I discovered your podcast just over a month ago when I was looking for online support to help me cope with a recent discovery that my son was smoking weed nearly round the clock. He's a senior in college and is supposed to graduate in May, though I'm not sure that's going to happen. I live overseas in a developing country where there are no Al-Anon groups. I participate in online Al-Anon meetings, which have been helpful, but I find listening to your podcast to be the most comforting and informative thing I can do, in addition to studying the literature and working the steps. Indeed, when I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about my son, it's your podcast that I turn to. As I have struggled to understand my son's situation, it's become clear that he may be using weed to self-medicate as a way of addressing a mood disorder. This muddies the water for me in terms of how I approach him. I'm not sure loving detachment works when the addicted loved one is also struggling with mental health issues. I'm wondering if you've done any episodes that address this combination of challenges. If not, would you consider doing so? Thank you so much for your investment of time in pulling together these podcasts. You've helped so many people. I went online to try to donate but wasn't able to locate the donation button. I'll try again in a few weeks to see if it's working. May you be healthy, happy, and at peace. Thank you so much. Lisa. 
Thank you for calling me, sir. That is a difficult situation when substance abuse is combined with mental illness. But my understanding of detachment with love doesn't mean totally hands-off. It means doing the things that are mine to do and then letting my loved one live their experience, find their path, and do the things that are theirs to do. When my child was in a psych ward because of some of their thoughts and actions, having been deemed a potential danger to self and others, my responsibility, what I could do, and this was a a young adult child, so not a minor child, my responsibility was to receive them out of the hospital, to help them to get to their initial doctor appointments, but then I had to go back to the city I lived in, which is not where they were living, and leave them to continue their treatment as they sought best on their own. And when they decided to discontinue treatment, we expressed that we weren't sure that was the best decision, but it did work out. And in either case, we had to let our child have the dignity of, of, you know, living their life and making their own decisions. And it's not easy and it's not always comfortable. So what can you do? Do it. But as with addiction, as with anything that affects the behavior of a loved one, at some point we can love them, but we can't control them. And that's what loving detachment is really about. So again, thanks for calling. We got a, a voicemail from Toby who liked the uh, the episode that I put together with a bunch of voices from, from listeners a few weeks ago. I like to do that occasionally, especially if I feel like the, the mail's been piling up for a little while. It's sometimes it happens because life, you know. Oh, hi, Spencer. This is Toby. I'm calling in response to episode 319, More Voices. I really enjoyed all the voices on that show. So thank you for occasionally doing a podcast with multiple sharings from lots of different people. It's nice to hear many thoughts and perspectives. I also wanted to respond to a couple things I heard on the show, specifically someone, I think it was Kathy O from California, called in with some acronyms for fear. And I have another one that I like, which is forgetting everything is all right. I often go into fear when I forget that my higher power is in charge and really can handle everything if I just turn it over. So I wanted to share that acronym. And another acronym not related to fear that I have found incredibly helpful is Q-TIP, which stands for Quit Taking It Personally. I tend to take everything personally, and I needed the reminder early on in program, and so I just latched on to that acronym, and I still use it. Thank you, Spencer, for all you do, and I wanted to share those two ideas with everyone else on the program. Have a good day. Thanks, Toby, for that recognition. Also, for the uh, the Q-tip acronym, that was one that I learned pretty early. Okay, so actually, Josh, this is an interesting question, maybe. I have okay. a coworker who is practicing Buddhist. She's actually studying to become a priest. Uh-huh. She said... There's no other way, in, in her understanding of the teachings, there's no other way to take something than personally. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, but that's 
not what I mean when I say quit taking it personally. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I understand right. that the, that the only way I can experience the world is personally. Yeah. But when I say quit taking it personally, what I mean is I need to stop thinking that everything's happening, that people are acting in the way they're acting because of me, because they're doing it to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But it's like, ah, wait, now I have to think about this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've thought about this, too, in, in the Buddhist context about, you know, because I, I remember parts of the 12-step literature where there's things like selfishness and self-centeredness is like at the root of a lot of our troubles. And when you take things personally, a lot of times it's, it has to do with, with that kind of, you know, don't take it personally. You know, it's not all about you, <laughs> right? Right. But in Buddhism, one of the things that happens or an insight that people get sometimes is this idea of interdependence, how, mm. you know what, we have an effect. There's a cause and effect thing that happens in the world. Like, I'm responsible for what I do, for, for my actions. Yep. And so there's always an impact that happens in the world. So maybe I don't take things personally as like my ego or that, you know, this is because of me, because I am the center of the universe. Or rather take it personally, like I have a reaction to this or what what I did affected somebody else. And so from a Buddhist kind of intimacy or personal thing is just recognizing that I, my presence in the world, which is valuable, has an effect. Yeah. You know, and so that's how I see it as taking it personally, because I'm I'm part of the world, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That was that was a great coincidence that that uh uh-huh. that, that voicemail came in while I had you on the phone. Yeah. And and Pat left us a, a brief note about Eric's favorite acronym weight. Hey Spencer. Uh, this is Pat from the West Coast. I just had a recent aha moment, which was you know, Eric's always saying wait, why am I talking? And I always kind of thought it was kind of a throw-off, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just throwing stuff out in the air there, and it's not really very valuable, and, you know, why am I throwing, saying things that aren't necessary? And then a little bit ago, I realized it changes the meaning entirely if I think, why am I talking? Which has now become pretty important because it gets down to the kernel of, makes me think about what are my emotions, what are my motivations. Oh, of course, the bus came by just now. Um, it was quiet before this. At any rate, why am I talking? What is the reason that I'm trying to talk? And for some reason, that's been really a helpful nuance on weight. Anyway, thanks. Bye. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. We got a review in Apple Podcasts from Lily. Writes your show introduced me to Alanon. I listen between meetings. Your honesty and willingness to provide this service is much appreciated. And thank you so much, Lily, for those kind words. Reviews can help, as a friend of mine puts it, provide social proof of the value of the podcast. You know, somebody's like, I don't know, should I listen to this thing or not? Maybe your words will help them decide. Thanks. And you've got one more song here. This this must be the one that's uh, tango, huh? <laughs> it is a tango song, and you mentioned the the weight acronym. Yeah. The, the title the title of this particular song is Paciencia, Spanish for patience. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but it, you know, in Spanish, the the idea of 
you know, patience, you think of that and has to do with, you know, being accepting, no things will pass. It's, it's kind of Buddhist in some ways, but in Spanish also patience can mean a little bit has the connotation of being present throughout a difficult experience, you know, mm. being willing to be with the melancholy and, you know, in, in tango, a lot of songs are about love and love lost. And so, you know, it's being patient with heartbreak, <laughs> let's say. Mm-hmm. But the, the lyrics, a little snippet of the song, this is a composer named Juan D'Arienzo. He didn't write the song. I forget who wrote it. But the lyric translation goes like this. Uh, Patience. Life is like this. Out of pure ego, we tried to get together. And now those same egos reveal how different we are. Why should we pretend otherwise? Patience. Life is like this. Neither of us is to blame if there's any blame to go around. That's why the hand that you clasped in silence did not tremble when I left. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.